there. This is episode zero of a sneaker podcast called Bailey on the Bass. I am not Bailey. My name is Valerie. And I am in a rather unlikely place to start a sneaker podcast. Because this is going to be a rather unlikely sneaker podcast. I think. I'm walking past a... Well, along a strip mall in the wind, great, <laughs> in northeast, northeast section of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'm on my way to where the Bailey in question is. Said Bailey is my boyfriend, Matt. Before I met him, all I knew about Snooker was that there was this Canadian guy named Cliff Thorburn. And that Snooker used to be on TV in Canada about 25 years ago at least. By the way, I come from the United States and I've been a dual citizen of US and Canada for about a dozen years. Matt's been here for a few years. taught me a little bit. <laughs> so right now I'm outside Shooters Snooker and Sports Club, exclamation mark. The sign says outside. Now we're about to go in. It's pretty quiet right now because there are a lot of snooker tables but because there are a lot of pool tables, but the guys who would usually be playing on them are at a tournament in Newmarket, about a half hour north of here. Um, I have cold, sorry. <laughs> so beyond these uh, about dozen or so pool tables, there are snooker tables. where a final qualifying tournament for the Nationals is going on. Hey, do you. All right. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. See you. See you later. Bye. So you ready to go on this? Yeah. Got right. a win too much. Okay. Matt's not playing snooker today. He's already qualified for the Canadians. This qualifying tournament is for the last two Ontario slots for the Nationals. The last qualifying tournament of the season. The Nationals will happen here in this venue in the middle of June. We put a big set of curtains blocking one uh, place from the other. We came up uh, to watch a little bit of uh, a couple of Matt's friends from the club where he usually plays, which is more downtown, the Annex Club. We'll get to that later. Um, 
came up to check out how they were how they were doing, and one didn't show up, and one just lost four nil. <laughs> um, but there's also uh, a nine ball pool tournament that goes on here every week, uh, regardless of uh, the other bigger tournament. Um, so there were still some guys here who uh, get together to uh, play some pool. Now, Matt's, as you'll learn, Matt's passion is snooker. But this is Canada, and he can win more money playing in a pool tournament with about maybe half dozen, ten guys. He can win more money in that than he can in a fully sanctioned 36-player qualifying tournament, which he did earlier this year. And uh, so that's kind of the situation. <clears throat> so for today, Matt's playing pool. All right, Matt Bailey, uh, born in Bristol. Uh, 1974, April 18th. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. um, First time you picked up a cue? I don't really know. First time I picked up a cue, I was quite young. I was about probably six or seven. Uh, it's kind of a little cue uh, on a very small little table. Um, wasn't really big enough to actually play on a big table um, until maybe 10 or 11 when I started playing them pot black. And okay, back to that. It was 10 or 11 that you first went into pot black? Yeah, um, I still wasn't big enough to play on the full size table, but there was a guy down there, Bob Chandler, who was a professional referee. And um, he used to drag this box around behind me, which I used to stand on. So I could reach the table. Aww. Still wasn't tall enough even then. But you know, I, I, I didn't really start playing properly until I was about 12, 11 or 12. Uh, and I used to go down with my dad, and about a year after that, I knocked in my first century, which was 100, 103 on table six at Pot Black. Again, how old were you? At this point, I was about 12 and a half, so yeah, I guess I, it was, I was playing 10 months at the time, so I guess I must have. I was over 12 and a half, uh, 11 and a half when I started playing. Okay. So, anyway. Was that when uh, you would start competing on a regular basis? Yeah, I was competing in a local league and uh, a Sunday tournament at Pop Black, which was a handicap. Tournament. Right. Um, and I was using a cue, which is much like uh, the one which uh, Sean and Murphy is using, a very old cue, and which my dad still uses today, uh, an old Joe Davis cue. Um, it's probably about 80 years old. So anyway, uh, started off playing with that thing. It's way too long for me. <laughs> so yeah, so that was that. Um, and then I progressed and started playing in Ancient Snooker Center where I was playing the likes of Judd Trump, uh, who was 
So I would be about 12, Jeff would be about 6 or 7. <laughs> Did you have compete, competing support people carrying boxes around for you <laughs> to stand on? At this point, I was just yeah, tall enough. Yeah, I know. You'd, enough, you'd, no, you'd uh, gotten just tall enough to get. And yeah, now I'm watching Judd in the same position I was in. And so at this point now, I'm giving Judd 60 or 70 points start. It's hard to really remember. Uh, just 21 now. 35, I think. 18 years. A lot of years went past at this point. Um, Judd stuff. I'm, I'm going to concentrate on Judd now because it gives me a good perspective on time. Okay. He started going down, competing a lot when he was about eight or nine. Eighteen years, twenty-four, which was about just about when I quit as a professional player or even competing at all. Then we need to back up a second. Right. 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 When did you turn professional? Uh, I was just about 18, 19, something like that. Okay. So that would be 1990. 1990. 1990. Sorry, that's a lie. I was 1990. I was 1992 because I'd done my A-levels at college. Right. Uh, I went straight into the pro ranks, 1992, 1993. Fine. Uh, I, I did that for about three years and then quit for a bit. And pretty much gave up playing at all. Um, went to university for a little while, and then came back playing again. Not serious, but then came back and then started playing Kenchum again. The, the, these handicap tournaments, uh, pretty high handicap. Started playing quite well. Not playing century breaks again. Playing in the leagues um, again. You know, playing at a high level. And that's when I started noticing some of these young players coming up. Um, a lot of players you watch on TV now are playing against these guys. Um, I'm going to need you to name names. Well, yeah. Again. Well, at this point, uh, a lot of the guys that I was playing with when I first turned pro, like Stephen Lee, uh, Matthew Stevens, um, Mark Williams, Ian Sargent. Um, they turned professional around about the same time or just before I did actually Ronnie a little bit before me there's so many players it's hard okay. to name them off the bat they don't, they don't. they'll, they'll the come queue. up they'll come up though. yeah uh, yeah, no, that, that was just the early part of the early days, really. Um, and you competed in the UK Championship. UK, the world. And uh, the Worlds. Well, and all the others. Um, right. But the early qualifying rounds, so yeah. I had to play lots of qualifying matches to get through to any sort of stage near television. Right. Okay, so... You went away from it, and then you started a competing yeah. a little bit again, like at King Shimon stuff. Yeah, and then I went back into the semi-pro ranks. Right, okay. Which 
kind of what is that? It's uh, it, it's something which uh, pre Barry Hearn, it, it, it was kind of a it was like a, a player's tour thing. So you go in there and you um, you finish in a, a top. Back in the day, you finish in a top one to eight of a certain amount of players, and then top one to eight would play uh, the bottom one to eight of the pros. And then, okay. So you'd have playoffs, playoffs after that, playoffs after that, and eventually you play to get on television after that again. It was just like another, just another different way of deciding who was going to make it through to the later stages. Right. It's changed every year almost, um, ever since. But in the last 20 years, it's almost been different every year. Okay, but there's... Is there some sort of an equivalent to that now, or is actually the equivalent to a Q school? It's the same but different. Yeah. It's, it's, it's never really been that different. Uh, you know, back in the day before I was playing, you had to, there was there was two ways, there were, there, were, there were three or four ways in. You could either be world amateur champion, and you were professional guaranteed. There was eight spots. Right. Um, you either world amateur, English amateur, uh, I can't remember which ones they were now. I think you have to be Scottish amateur, Welsh amateur, I think even Australian, I mean, it was weird, uh, and, and, and there were four spots where you had four playoff spots, where if you finished in the top ranking events, there were four events per year, and the top four amateurs in the world played the bottom four professionals out of 128 pros, and if they beat them, they became professional, and the bottom four pros were picked out. That was, what, that was maybe 25, 30 years ago. Is there, is there anybody still playing now who has come out of those semi-pro ranks that yeah. you can think oh, of? Well, yeah, uh, I can think of, no, but there's plenty of them. Okay, that'll probably come up later anyway. One who's going into that Q school would be uh, Tony Knowles. Tony Knowles. Okay, fair enough. You'll never get any 50 something. <laughs> well, that's the thing about Q school. I hope spring's eternal. Same is true with golf. Yeah, it's a little different. Um, okay, so how long did were you in that semi-pro thing? A couple of years, but I wasn't really in it because I was working. I was working full time, so I was really just finding. It. Were you working for World Snooker yet? I worked for World Snooker as a, a temp during this time, or yeah, I'd been on and off. Yeah. Then I worked for the bank and all that. Okay. And just to make it clear, when you worked at World Snooker, you were uh, an accountant? Yeah. Okay. You were in the accounting department. Yeah. Got it. So. I've probably been to university at some point during that time. <laughs> it's all a bit of a blur. Yeah. Can you make out how old you were then when you left semi pro? Although it, there probably wasn't a set break. 26, 27. Okay. And so that was kind of the last of vaguely professional yeah, snooker in the I, UK for you? Yeah. I mean, since I've, I've been in that out of leagues and stuff, and, you know, I've still been playing at a high level. I've won tournaments. 
got big tournaments, but I've won tournaments and won the Bristol Open a few times. I've played in the English Amateur a couple of times, qualified for that. And, you know, I've played big stuff, but not stuff which is ever going to get me in back into the pro ranks here. Okay. Possible that I could, still, but... But it was just like... Just kind of had to play. It was just to I play. I stopped playing. Yeah. I tried. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now the transition to Canada. Um, were you still playing in whatever form when stuff started happening that started the wheels towards you coming to Canada? No. How long had you been out of it? Um, when I decided I was coming, I was I've been out of it about six months. I was because I decided I was coming over. I just I put it this way. Uh, when I first came here, I I came here as a visitor for the best part of a year, and I left my queue at home, so I, I had no. This was when Darren lived here. Yeah. Oh, then no, no, no. no. I was twenty-two then. All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, when I first came here to live with. Person who would become your wife? Yes. Um, I was here for ten months, and I didn't even have my cue, so I had no intention of playing. Uh, then when that all went a bit pear-shaped after we got married, um, I then came back. No, no, I was going to live here, and I brought my cue over because I thought, you know, if I'm going to live here, I'm going to try and make snooker work as well. I'm going to try and play it. And that's when I decided I was going to try and get the game going here, if possible. And I started making contacts and looking up some of the players that I remembered as a child and or a young adult. Um, some of the top pros that used to be in Canada. Cliff Thorburn, Kurt Stevens, Bill yeah. Robinick, who's obviously dead. So it was difficult to look him up. Um, <laughs> Jim White. Uh, some of which I'd already looked up when I came over before. And it didn't take long before, you know, I played a few tournaments over here and within six months to a year I sort of knew everybody or everybody knew me or whatever um, as a player. And you learned that there weren't many more people to learn. <laughs> no. There was, there was no one else. <laughs> you kind of got what the lay of the land was. Yeah. No, there, there was no new... Uh, there was nothing new here. It was, in fact, if anything... You know, when I first came over, when my brother was living here uh, almost 20 years ago, it was, it was like a, a worse scenario than England. Uh, in England, uh, in Bristol, my hometown... There used to be 25 clubs when I was a kid, and now there's about seven or eight. All right. So it's not just Canada that suffered, it's, it's the whole world. Okay, just to be clear for anyone who doesn't know. Right. When your brother, Darren, was here, mm. about how Almost 20 long? years ago. Okay. That's when he moved here. Can you remember how prevalent clubs were then? Very prevalent. There would have been about 15 clubs in Toronto. And 
Okay, 15 clubs back then and With now. Snooker tables. And for those who don't know, now there are in the same area. Three. Yeah. But Bristol, again, has gone from about 25 down to about less than 10. Mm. Decent sized, you know, clubs. Right. So every, it's not just Canada suffering. Obviously, it's suffered more because you know, as far as England's concerned, it's our national, one of our national sports. Yes. Canada, it's not. So it's going to suffer a little more. But um, correct. But England's a hotbed of snooker. Canada is not. And I, you know, so every year since I've moved here, which is only three or four, really, um, I've been trying, although not as hard as maybe I could have done I've been trying to get things moving but it's a little frustrating because uh, the powers that be out here which aren't many are a little difficult to convince to uh, really do anything uh, to get to get the cogs turning and it's hard to keep your own momentum going just you know just well it while, is yeah while, you know living life yeah. So it's, you know... It's tricky. You know, I, I, I'm... But at the same time, you also see around you, you see at the club, our club, your club, um, Yeah. you know, like on a Thursday night, snooker tables are full. Yeah, there's, there's potential, and there's kids who want to learn. I mean, I've, I've just... Relatively young, uh, I've relatively recently started some coaching and yes. it's slowly starting to build up and I've got, I can't say I'm surprised, but uh, the students mainly seem to be of a, an ethnic background, they're more sort of Chinese, uh, well at the moment I've got three main students, two Chinese and one, potentially one Greek. If he'll just listen. If he'll just open <laughs> his ears for one second. Yeah. Uh, and there's a couple of Canadians who might or might not come on board. But, um, <clears throat> but the rise of snooker in China has been reflected over on here. the Chinese immigrant population here. Many of whom have quite a bit of money. Yeah, and, and, and there's, you know, there's a lot of students who... Uh, and st- yeah. Yeah, who got more money, well, <clears throat> let's say the banks have more money than your average person working, so. <laughs> so, it's not like, it's not a complete wasteland, sometimes if you... It's just nowhere to look to get you, these if people you, If you don't look at the sanctioned competitions, and instead look at just the clubs, what few there are... Things actually look sort of hopeful. There is there is hope. It's just it's just knowing the eye. It's just a matter of yeah, just things kind of falling into place somehow. It's really also it's uh, it's getting the club owners involved um, to some extent. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, uh, I'm not going to mention any club names or owners here, but uh, no, 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 it's not necessary. It's not necessary, but what I will do is say that one club guy went, uh, runs one of the clubs here. Uh, closer to where I live, I'll say that much. He's very much interested in the game, and if it was up to him, I know there'd be tournaments and things run at his club. 
But the owners are not really interested in snooker. Um, all they really want is the tables to be full and they're more interested in that, so therefore the, they got more pool tables. Um, so they couldn't really give a damn about snooker as a game. The other club, the owner of the club there is more of a snooker player, but he doesn't really seem interested in promoting the game at all. Um, which is a shame, because the tables are better there, to be honest. Um, it's a bit of a conundrum at the moment. It's, it's a case of getting people interested and getting some sponsorship money involved as well. Yeah. The money's actually in pool over here at the moment, and the players seem to flock to where the money is. Right. And without the players, the game is not going to happen. But there are players, it's just a matter of getting them together. Yeah, I mean, I want to start a league. I've already been told by several of the organizers that leagues are not popular over here, which I can't understand why players wouldn't want one night a week, like an unpopular night a week, like a Tuesday or a Thursday night, right. when nobody does anything. Like 7 o'clock till 11 o'clock, you know. A couple of small teams just do something, just get together and uh, social night, mm -hmm. bit of practice. Why not? Yeah. Okay. It's just what we do. That's what we do back home. That's what we do in Europe. It's uh, it's practice. It, it's a sociable thing. It's not expensive. At the end of the year, everyone gets a little trophies, whatever. A um, little bit of money, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I can compare it, being from the States, I can compare it the to bowling. Bowling, bowling, right. Which is also diminished in the last 20 years, but still is there and still, well, it, it, it's kind of regionally dependent. There are some regions of the country where it's more popular than others. But, but yeah, you got leagues and you include junior leagues on the weekends and or that sort of thing. Get it sponsored by a local company and off you go, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to involve loads of money. No, not loads of it. No, exactly. So, anyway. So, that's kind of the lay of the land here. And just to get this out of the way, top break. Home for seven. Top break. Unofficially? What, in a match? No, top break in competition. In competition, one, four, five. Alright. Bye! So, what, uh, so, what's... We're not entirely sure what's going to happen in this podcast. Things are going to change from time to time, time to time as there are things to talk about or not talk about. Um, obviously, there's a limited amount of things to talk about in terms of Canadian snooker. But as I've mentioned previously uh, earlier, uh, the Nationals are in June. Yep. And, um, well. and so such as, and so we'll be there'll be that stuff going on. And just other things just about how things are here, but there's also snooker in general around the world. There's... It's also Manchester United, the Reds. Well, you know, there's 15 Reds on the table and there's at any one time 11 Reds on the pitch. Yeah, but there are podcasts about them. I know, I'm sorry. I just had to, <laughs> I, I had to fit that in. <laughs> There's, but there's just snooker in general. You've just, you've 
just watched over the last few days some pretty amazing sessions at the world, which we can only watch on live stream online. Yeah. Somewhat not entirely legally. And um, yeah, so there'll be uh, discussions surrounding watching those things and other matches from the past, um, discussing favorite players of yours and somewhat somewhat some yeah maybe a few uh, and you have incidents that have happened around certain players which some. leads to uh, also that you have some <coughs> stories surrounding your days back in the day which again probably may have to miss out a few names here and there but exactly yeah. and also as has been mentioned you are a coach and if, if I may say so, you have a very particular talent for coaching that transcends, honestly, uh, possibly, your talents as a player. Um, and, and that's saying something. So there may be some uh, handy tips, tips and ideas and things to consider when uh, considering your own game. So... Well, this, this is kind of a first off here, actually. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe there, there could be uh, maybe a, a question of the week or a tip of the week, maybe. Yeah. Type, type, yeah. type of thing. Uh, yeah. You know, so exactly. Let's we'll see how this goes. All right. So, for the time being... Um, dipping the toe in the wall That's kind of the deal. And actually, what we've just done has, in fact, filled up in episode zero. Yeah, and all we'll do is probably clip out some bullshit and put some funny little bits of music in between. <laughs> yeah, you say that realizing that it's actually me who has to find them. Well, no, we can get some of that stuff from, you know, the uh, pop the red and screw back in. <laughs> it's time to start working on post-production already. <clears throat> so that's it for the time being. That's pretty much the mission statement, such as it is, and... That's who Bailey on the bases. So I uh, hope you can come along with us. So thanks. Yeah, thanks.